Hi, and welcome to Journey Through the Word, a podcast that takes us through the scriptures, one book and one message at a time. I'm Jeff Gilbert, and I'll be your guide through the Bible to help you better understand God's Word, what He wants to teach us, and more about His Son, Jesus Christ. We're going to look now at the second half of the first chapter of Acts. After Jesus has ascended, having met the disciples there on the Mount of Olives, He ascended up into heaven. They met the angels, the men dressed in white. They received instructions that they were supposed to go back to Jerusalem and wait. Of course, they don't know what they're waiting for, but they are obedient, always with high expectations, knowing that when they received instructions from Jesus, there was always a purpose and a reason, and always a fulfillment to any promises that he might have given to them. So to go back and wait, they went. They went into an upper room, and it says that they began to pray. And this is something that Christians should always do when they get together. They should take some opportunity to pray with each other. Of course, eating and having fun and joking around is always good too. But it's always good to pray and pray for each other. Uh, We have limited opportunities sometimes to meet with other believers and to really do something serious like pray for each other's needs and ask for God's intervention in our lives. So we should pray for one another and care for one another, talk to one another, encourage and exhort each other. And here the disciples are meeting there to pray. We've got the 12 disciples minus Judas. And so Peter um, brings to their attention the scripture in the Old Testament that says uh, the bishopric or the office or the ministry that the one is abandoned talking about Judas, referring to Judas here that one of them is missing, that another should take. Now, they have a, quite, they have a problem. They, the question would be, who in the world should we select? Because Jesus had prayed all night long, come down, and decided, decided to pick his apostles that were going to follow him. However, here, how are they going to do it? They don't have really spiritual gifts to guide them. They don't have maybe even enough wisdom to do it. But they want to do the will of God, and they are, their attention has been brought to this scripture that says that they should uh, fill this last office. So they're introduced to two guys here, uh, one whose name is Matthias, and the other whose name is Justice. And these two guys have some things in common. They were devout followers of Jesus. They were there from the beginning of his ministry, from the baptism all the way through So they saw most of the things that the rest of them saw. They knew about Jesus. They witnessed all of those things. So they would be effective ministers and witnesses going forward as well. So they don't know how to pick him. So what do they do? It says they cast lots to decide which one it should be. Now, casting lots, we don't know exactly what they're talking about. The Bible refers to this kind of selection in in various times in the Old Testament And even in the New Testament, it says that the soldiers cast lots to choose who would get the garment of Jesus because it was too valuable to tear into different sections and to divide. 
So they cast lots to decide who should get it. In the Old Testament, there was also casting lots. And there was also this thing called Urum and Thummim in, in uh, Hebrew culture or Hebrew religion, where they would decide what God's will was according to the Urum and the Thummim. And we don't even know what they are. They're a mystery. Even until today, they might have been a couple of different colored stones. They might have been different textured stones. We don't know. They might have had writing on them. And depending on how they were used, maybe they were thrown. And however they landed would be the answer that, yes, this was God's will, or no, that was not God's will. So that was Orm and Thummim. We can also see, I'll give an example of casting lots, is that when Israel went into Canaan, and they went into the battle of Ai, and they lost the battle. And they knew there was sin in the camp, but they didn't know what the sin was, who it was, or where it was. So it says they began to call, the, you know, first the tribes. So there would have been 12 twi- tribes represented there. And they cast lots to decide, and the lot fell on a particular tribe. Then it was divided further. They cast lots. They got down to the family, to the father. And then they cast lots for his sons, and it fell on Achan. And they said, Achan, what have you done? And he said, oh, I stole treasure, and it's hidden in my tent, etc. So we know that story in the Old Testament. And it just goes to show that they use this casting of lots as a way that to make decisions and choices. And in fact, in that case, is a good example that God actually spoke through their casting of lots. We could ask, do we need to cast lots today? Do we need Urim and Thummim today? There's no, there's no sign anywhere beyond this in the New Testament that we would use this kind of a tool following this moment in the, in the New Testament. Later on, as they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and spiritual gifts become manifest in the church and evident in people's lives, and in those gifts are things like a gift of knowledge or a gift of wisdom or a gift of discernment or prophecy. So those things replace what would take place in the cast of lots in the Old Testament. I should also say that we have prophecy in the Old Testament that also directed them. But in the cases where there was no prophet or God didn't speak through the prophet, they would use this method. So I think we've said enough about that. They pick Matthias as the or Matthias as the last apostle there. Now some people will also say that Matthias was not the right choice, that they did an act by casting lots that was not spiritual, was not scriptural, and that, in fact, Paul was the twelfth apostle. Paul calls himself an apostle, but he doesn't say that he should have been the one instead of Matthias, even though he came at a later time. So it doesn't, the Bible's not clear. Is it supposed to be Paul? Was it supposed to be Matthias? I think here we should take the Bible at face value and understand that, you know, this is what it says, that they picked him, so let's go with him. As we move on, uh, they're going there into Jerusalem, well, they're in Jerusalem, rather, and they're on the day of Pentecost. Now, this is really important to know, because the feasts are symbolized here in all of these events that are taking place. For example, we know that Jesus was crucified on the Feast of Passover. And the Feast of Passover was a feast that God ordained to commemorate the time 
and uh, the Israelites were set free from Egypt. And the way they were set free was through the killing of a perfect lamb, the shedding of the blood, and the blood placed on the doorposts of the house. And when the people were inside the house, this was back in the in early in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, they're in Egypt, and this is the final plague. The death angel will fly over that night. And when he flies over, if the blood of the lamb is on the doorposts of the home, then those people are saved from death. The firstborn are saved from death. And those people would be leaving Egypt immediately after that night. So to commemorate that, they would always, every year, celebrate the Feast of Passover. And when Passover was celebrated, it had a new meaning because it was celebrated right up until the moment that Jesus, as the perfect lamb, was sacrificed as an atonement for our sins. And because of that, we're set free from the bondage of this world and from the bondage of sin. Even when Jesus stepped down into the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Meaning that this was the final Lamb, the final atonement, for our sins. So today, if you accept Jesus as the atonement for your sins, he forgives you and you become his. You become a servant of his. We say in different ways, we say, oh, you're saved now. Or we could say you're a Christian now. Or we could say you're part of his kingdom. You've been born again. There's lots of different ways we could say it but it means that he forgave you of your sins and now you belong to him. Hallelujah for that. We could say that you've taken the blood of our lamb, Jesus Christ, and applied it to the doorposts of your heart. Because of that, death no longer can touch you. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to die. Most likely, you're going to die. Unless you're one who happens to be here when Jesus comes back for his church. But there's a chance you could die before then. But that's a physical death. But what we're concerned and what God's concerned about is a spiritual death. And that spiritual death takes us and and it condemns us for all of eternity. But the simple act, and I want to emphasize how simple it is and how instantaneous it is, that the blood of Jesus takes away our sins and sets us free from that death. And that's the act of Passover. That's the feast when Jesus was crucified. That was the celebration in the feast of Passover. Now we go ahead 50 days. Of course, he's risen from the dead. He appeared for many days doing different signs and wonders with the disciples. And then we get to the next feast here called the Feast of Pentecost. So what does the Feast of Pentecost, why did they celebrate this feast? Well, we know that it was because 50 days after the Israelites were set free from Egypt, that Passover evening, that in the wilderness, Moses went up until the top of Mount Sinai. And when they looked up to the top of Mount Sinai, they could see the people stayed at the bottom. Only Moses went all the way up to the top. 
They could see clouds. They could see lightning and thunder. And it lasted for a long time. And it was during that time that God gave to Moses the Ten Commandments. After that, he came down and he started to present to them a new way that they were to follow God. God was giving them new rules and new laws that they were going to follow. It was a new life for them. And they needed new guidance. They are no longer slaves. They were no longer going to follow Egyptian rule and the rule of Pharaoh. But now they're going to follow the actual commands and voice of God. Here in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we're looking at the Feast of Pentecost again. So they're there in Jerusalem. It's a feast that's taking place. They're praying. And now something similar happens. Fire. Wind. A great noise. And flames that settle down on top of each one of them. And that's the new Pentecost. It's kind of instead of the flames and the clouds and the noise and the thunder coming down on a mountaintop and giving new commandments. It's the Holy Spirit coming in cloud, well, not clouds, but fire, noise, wind, and a new language, right? They, they started to speak in, in tongues. And in this way, there was a new Pentecost. So today, when we talk about Pentecost, we're referring to this moment. So sometimes we see a church, it's called, oh, they're a Pentecostal church. And what does that mean? It means that they believe in this event and that it's essential for a believer to have an experience not only with the salvation of Jesus, but to have an experience with his Holy Spirit as well. That the Holy Spirit wants to come and dwell in us in a grand experience. Maybe not with flames of fire and thunder and smoke, but in different ways that really affect our life and the way we live and the way we behave, all different things that are guided by the Holy Spirit. And so we should also know that the real purpose of the Holy Spirit, I suppose I, I can't say there's only one purpose, but I will refer to what Jesus said, was don't be afraid because I won't leave you alone, but I'm going to send a comforter to comfort you. Well, the Holy Spirit he can bring comfort to us because we don't have Jesus physically with us. He's ascended into heaven. Our Heavenly Father, we don't see him. We pray to him, but we don't see him. But the Holy Spirit, he comes and he dwells inside the believer. So now in the Old Testament, they had a temple and they would go to the temple or even before that, they had a tabernacle, a kind of a tent. And God would come down in those days and he would visit that tabernacle or he would visit that tent. He would fill it with fire or he would fill it by clouds. And the high priest would go in or Moses would stand at the, the gate of the tabernacle. And God would speak to them from that holy of holies room deep inside the tabernacle. And that's how God communed with people. Even in Solomon's day, he built that first temple, which we understand was incredibly ornate, incredibly beautiful, was according to the will and the plan of God. And after he dedicated it and the people said, we want to serve you, you know, in paraphrase, God's presence came down 
and filled the temple so greatly that no one was able to stand inside and serve. They all ran from the temple because his presence was so great. That's how it is for us. The Bible says that we are now the temple of God. Each one of us is a temple of God. Isn't that wonderful? So we don't longer have to be at a place in order to feel the presence of God. We no longer have to go somewhere in order to see God's experience and do things. That doesn't mean we shouldn't go to church or go to conferences or meet with other Christians. Of course, we should do those things as well. But what it means is that God can meet us right where we are, that he can come and fill us and bless us individually. So now we are the replacement of that tabernacle, of that temple, of that synagogue, of that church building. We are now the temple of God, and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside each one of us. It's a unique experience. Now, is it the only thing the Holy Spirit does? No, I don't want to go into all the things the Holy Spirit does, because we'll spend just weeks and weeks here in this one section. But, of course, the, Holy, the Bible says the Holy Spirit leads us to Christ. So, there's an experience with the Holy Spirit even before we know Jesus as our Savior. And the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament in different times and in different ways and with different prophets. So he was always operating from time to time. But now he's really come and he's filled these guys, filled them with the presence of God. Some other things we should talk about is that the purpose is that the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us to teach us how we should live, because he does do that. He guides us and we know that when we're doing something wrong, not because of conscience or something like that, but because the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do the right thing according to his will and his plan for our lives. Also, when our flesh wants us to do something that's contrary to what the Holy Spirit wants us to do, then those two factions war against each other within us. And we feel that, of course, as Christians, very often, that we want to do something, and yet we know it's not right, because it's a flesh that's pulling us and trying to get us to do something against the will of God. And the Holy Spirit, His voice is very calm and quiet and simple, leading us in a very gentle and nice way, opposed to our flesh. So, Paul says that the flesh and the spirit are constantly warring with each other within us. We want to do what's right. The spirit guides us to do what's right. And yet our flesh is always against us, trying to pull us to do the things that are wrong. It's a tough place to be as a Christian, for sure. But when the Holy Spirit wins, it's such a great victory for us. We praise God because the Holy Spirit won in our hearts and overcame our flesh and did the things that were more pleasing to God. That's the reason that Christians are transformed when we get to know Jesus. It's not because a person joins a religion that they change, or at least it shouldn't be. It's not because they're starting to go to a new church or a new place that they begin to behave differently. They speak different. They act different. They seem different. They're happier, probably. They're calmer. They're, they seem to be making their way through life in, in such a better way than before. And often when somebody gets saved, you know, people go, oh, what happened to you? Why are you so different? 
something's different about you. Oh, you've changed, right? And they don't know why. And we don't know why. But it's usually because the Holy Spirit is guiding their life, changing them. Where they used to, you know, curse and, you know, be sad or miserable. Now suddenly they're saying positive, happy things and they have a good outlook on life and they're filled with joy and thanksgiving and the presence of God and it's such a wonderful time for them suddenly and it's noticeable to everyone around them. I can even remember a time when uh, a lady came to one of our services and she'd only been saved for three weeks and she was just, you know, kind of low, looking down, staring at the floor. We prayed for her because she had a really serious need in her life and then the next week she came back and she was smiling and happier and I said oh hi how are you what happened well you prayed for me last week you know the, the, my friends here were praying for me and God guided me in a supernatural way this week and he solved a major problem in my life she was so happy Com- her countenance was completely changed then she said, now I have another need. I have a young son, and he's not happy. He doesn't want to come to church with me. He's really making life hard for me. So we all gathered around her. We prayed for her. The next week she came back, and her son was with her. And she said, he completely changed in just a week. It was so wonderful. And she was gaining in faith. She was gaining in experience. Her whole countenance and behavior, and even that of her son, was beginning to change. Why? Because our prayers were great? No. Because she had so much faith? No, she was a brand new Christian. She probably had very little faith. She changed because God was guiding her life. She wanted to do the right thing, and the Holy Spirit was answering our prayers and giving her new blessings and experience in her life, and her whole life was beginning to change. This is the great joy for us. You know, the other thing that took place there that day was that they began to speak in other tongues. So this was a a unique experience because it was the Feast of Pentecost. You know, thousands of people from all over Israel and even beyond would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. It was the law at least the law of the religious people, that you had to come at least once a year to Jerusalem for one of the major feasts. So they would come, a lot of them were there for Pentecost. It names the different nations that they came from. So lots of different languages and dialects. And when the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit that day, they began to speak in tongues. And these tongues for us, would probably sound very strange. Well, I don't understand what they're saying. And yet, each one was hearing what they were saying in their own language. So, say, for example, they were from far north and spoke a strange dialect. They say, how can this be that these Jews who are speaking in my dialect, and I'm understanding them. I don't know that they know my dialect. This is a unique experience. They were speaking in tongues, and they were hearing in their own languages. It was a great experience for the church, and of course, it was a great experience for the disciples who were there as well. 
because this was completely new to them. Jesus never said, wait in Jerusalem and you're going to speak in tongues and people are going to understand you in strange languages. No, he never said that. They never knew what was coming. It was an event that took place that's even a mystery for us today, how, how it happened. And so tongues is a topic for another day. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something that came from the Holy Spirit. Does it happen today? Yes, people speak in tongues today. Do people understand in their own language today? Well, to be honest, I've heard a couple people say that that happened. I've never seen or witnessed that it happened. Today, uh, I think we, we follow more according to what Corinthians says. If one speaks in tongues, another interprets. So one has a gift of tongues and one has a gift of interpretation of tongues. It's not translation, but it's one speaking in tongues and another understanding what God is saying through those tongues and saying it out loud in a language that people understand. So this is a really great event that takes place. This is the birth of the church. The church was not born when Jesus came because they were still under Jewish tradition and Jewish law. Here we have the third section, I would say, of the Bible. The first section God, our Heavenly Father, is working in the Old Testament, guiding people through prophets, through signs and wonders, even through, you know, like a sign of the giving of the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai. This is God, our Heavenly Father, leading and directing the people in the Old Testament. Then we have the middle section, where Jesus comes, and His purpose is, is to demonstrate the character and nature of God in the form of a man. So if we think of our Heavenly Father as a, a violent, hard, judgmental, kind of difficult God, we learn that through the testimony of Jesus and His behavior and through His words and teachings, that that's not true at all. He was filled with love and compassion, and He hated the religious ways. He wanted people to have a, a sincere faith, like a child. He talked in very simple terms. I'm the good shepherd. Follow me. I'm the, I'm the door. I'm the way. I'm the truth. Right? He talked in very simple things so that people could easily follow him as their savior. Not through religion, not through church, not through the laws of the Old Testament, but by believing on him, they would be saved. That was the message and the testimony that Jesus brought. And I don't think any one of us could look at the things that Jesus did or said, say, oh, I wouldn't want anything to do with him. I wouldn't want to be around him. He was tough. He was hard. No, he was hard on those who didn't want to believe and who rejected him. But for those who wanted to believe, for those who wanted to follow him, he was filled with love and compassion and kindness for them. He said, one of my favorite verses, uh, Come unto me, you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. And people in the world today, many of them are in that circumstance. They're really heavily burdened and laden down. And Jesus wants you to come unto him. Give your life to him. Put the blood of the perfect lamb upon the doorposts of your heart so that you can follow him. And then allow the Holy Spirit to come into your life and begin to work 
and guide you and change you. One last note before we finish here. The things that the Holy Spirit brings to us are not only demonstrations of great signs and guidance for our lives, but there are these things called the fruits of the Holy Spirit. There's nine of them. I won't name them all, but I'll give you examples. He brings peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, meekness. These are the things that the Holy Spirit brings to our life that if we were to try to obtain them by ourselves, we couldn't do it. If we tried to buy them, we couldn't find them. And if we asked anybody in the world, oh, can you give me patience? Can you give me kindness or gentleness or love or peace? They're not available anywhere except through the blessing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Next time we'll go further into the second chapter of Acts because it's a pivotal section in the New Testament for us.